Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Well, this is a treat. This, uh, I think this is the, uh, the most, you are the most requested guest uh, since this thing, since, certainly since we started working together. I get sort of once a week or twice a week, someone says, when are you going to have Damian Lewis on the show? So Damian, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's good to be here. Right? Good to I guess you had to wait and make sure that the thing really stood the test of time before just signing on. Yeah, you know, I wanted to hear a few of your podcasts and yeah. you know see what I was getting. Really into. know what you're getting yeah. yourself into, you know. But uh, with now billions, we know each other. This is nice. Yes, it seemed perfect with billions um, coming on this Friday because podcast is going to go up Tuesday. I mean, with billions starting Sunday, people can uh, and this thing's uh, going to go up Tuesday. It's sort of perfect timing. So, um, man, I had a hard time coming up with questions in a certain way because. Despite or because we work so closely together in such a specific and intimate way, but also because we respect each other's process, in that we really don't talk about process mm. that much. Mm. Neither of us, for all the sort of intimacies we've shared about our lives and mm. our closeness, we it seems that there's an area, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, because it's specific with you, like you, you never ask us how we do what we do. We don't really ask you. We just kind of trust that the other is taking care of it. Mm. Is it conscious on, on your part to kind of do the work and prepare without talking it all out? Um, no, I think different jobs require different uh, a different process. I I don't have a fixed process. I have a I kind of out of of a box of tricks that I go to, and that I use and that I like to use. Um, and when I say tricks, I don't mean that in a in a sort of superficial shortcut kind of way. I still, my process is still involved. Um, what I what what I find on this show is that it's uh, it's a very chatty show. You guys write uh, arias at times for people. The um, the dialogue is very involved. It can be it has a sort of heightened quality to it which you and david have perfected which people comment on a lot um which is so much fun to play um it also makes it quite hard to learn and so actually almost all my energies on this show are spent with learning and preparing the scenes and i come from the theater and i am constantly astounded by day players who can come in who can play a scene having never met anybody on the set and just trot this thing out word perfectly as though we've all known each other for 10 years and we've been rehearsing it for the last three weeks you've probably noticed with me uh, i come on set i hold my sides for a bit even though i've learned the lines i like to just look down at the sides a little bit i like to just feel my way in to the morning wherever we are i like to feel what set we're on what the location is and i like to just i like to sit back a little bit and see what my fellow actor is coming with because in the theater that that's what you spend five weeks rehearsing doing you all kind of you come out of the trench together and you go across no man's land together but no one gets ahead of anybody else and so there i still retain this sense of let's all find this together in tv with the schedules we have, you got to do it quick. That's that's the difference, and so there's a degree of spontaneity and improvisational quality. Just to, you need to arrive there quickly. So you finding sort you of don't where have you three are. Weeks. Yeah, you don't have three weeks. You got three minutes, so you find it quickly. But I I try to assimilate all information in those in those few moments. You know, 
scoffing down the last bit of breakfast or the last swig of coffee as you're just like, why is anyone asking me to act at 6.30 in the morning? This is inhumane. Or often just kind of looking at what I'm eating and sort of just yes, looking thinking. at me with your eyes like, really? Is, yeah. that, is that, are you Waffle, sure? Triple waffles again, Brian. <laughs> are you, are really? you sure that's really what you want to be doing? But, well, I was thinking about this when you, you and Paul yesterday because you guys had a scene together and um, watching the sort of difference... And the similarity. and Because when you say that these day players come in prepared, and for people who don't know, a day player is somebody who's not a regular or a recurring member of the cast, mm-hmm. but somebody who's got a job to do just in that episode. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're walking into it, and as you said, everyone else is their character, and these people have to come and play. But uh, don't you think part of it is that you guys... It's a point of pride, I think, in a way that you come so ready. You may have the sides there, but you do know it. How much have you thought about where Bobby is uh, before you walk in. Are you, as you're preparing, are you constantly reminding yourself of where he's been and where he's going? Or are you just trying to learn the words enough to be present when it happens? Um, uh, both. Both. But but um, in terms of, um, you know, Stanislavski's given circumstances sure. who, what, where, when. Um, um Sorry, why, what, where, when, never who. Um, sorry, never what. <laughs> what is the state? Wow. Go back to my Stanislavski. Uh, the what is the state, and the who and the why and the where and the when give you the state. So you never ask yourself directly the what, because then you end up just playing a state, and you don't play anything transitively. And for every actor, playing, playing transitively the action of the line is the most important thing you can do, which will either be to persuade the person you're with convince them of something to affect them in some way in order to give you what you need in yeah, your Ma- character. Yeah, as Mamet says, nobody speaks uh, unless they want something. Right, exactly, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's a shorter way of saying it. No, we I mean, could, he was just... Let's use that. <laughs> let's use that. I'm, uh, yeah, that's right. I don't say anything unless I want it, unless I want something. But that, but that's a, but that's essentially it. And, um, you know, uh, in, terms of, in terms of other things just to do with... With 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 Bobby, um, you know there is something improvisational, spontaneous about him. He's quick witted. He's an alley cat. He's a brawler, but he's an alley cat. He never uses a you know scalpel when you can use a sledgehammer. But he but he's a guy from the streets. That's his blue collar background. I've always really liked that about him. Kept him light on his feet, a bit like a boxer, a bit like a dancer, and and tried to give that feeling to him. Um, I use lots of different. Lots of different things, but the who, the who, what, where, when, who, why, where, when, excuse me, is important to me. And if I if I haven't managed that exactly, like written out a list at the beginning of every day, I'm not going to lie to you and say that I, I, I do that every day. But what I do do with every script I get is I just write Bobby's story down. So on the first page of my script, I have his scenes. I have his nine or ten scenes. So whatever's been going on in between, and that's, because there are so many storylines going so on in the show, yeah. I cut away all the other storylines so I can focus just on what, what does Bobby need from this hour? Or typically these four days, three or four days is a typical Yeah, the, 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 the period uh, yeah, that the story is taking sometimes place. Sometimes it happens in a day. Sometimes you write it in a day. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's great, and that's a useful thing for, for, for people, right? It's how you don't get lost in the morass of the whole thing. It's like, wait. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. What's my intention? Because exactly. it's another way of stating what's my intention? What do I what do I it. want? 
also just just thing. just context is everything. It's it just you know I go to the script supervisor and I just say what timing you know for example what time of day is this, and you know I make sure in my script I write what day the scenes are on so I know when it's first day and then when I've had a sleep. If Bobby's been home right to sleep. I know where day two is. So I, these are I'm coming crucial in, things. When I'm coming into the office the next day. Is it what is it? Is it six thirty in the morning? I need to know that. Yeah, you need to know where where am I? What's my energy level? Yeah, essentially, yeah. even though Axe is always yeah. a pretty energetic He's, guy. Yeah. But but you need to sort yeah. of understand yeah. where you've been. I like I like to know those things well, for and that, me. And the fact that you're doing that because you know you you came up in the theater and then film. Yeah. And even though the thing that made you famous and we'll talk about it was um, an extended piece. I, I would think that you know when you're plotting an arc in a film, it's a uh, quite different than having to do something over this long period of time to keep it fresh for yourself. Yeah. Um, yes. You know. Yes. You can plot a two-hour movie. That's what I'm saying. Easier yeah. than you can, and 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 that for me was a thing when I when I first started doing long-form TV. I thought, but hold on, I I it's important to me that I can be the architect of my own arc, you know. So I get have handed the script, but I need to be able. To, I want to plot this now for me, so I know how to give beats. Uh, and parse it out in a way that I think the writer requires. And so we can do that together. And and you give yourself over to the writer more in this long-form drama because, you know, you, you and David are very generous. You might say to me, yeah, sure, let's do bullet points. This is where you're going to sort of end up. We think sort of around episode six or seven, we think that's kind of happening. But the truth is, there's no point asking you six months prior to writing the final episode was because you haven't got the details yet. You're going to thrash that out with your writers in the room. And so, so there's, you know, Adrian Noble, who ran the Royal Shakespeare Company, when I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company, yeah. he said, be witty. Be witty as an actor on stage. And by that, I don't mean be funny. I mean be on your wits in the old-fashioned sense. You have to have your wits about you and perform and be... And be witty. Use your wit at all times. Have your wits about you. And I find that piece of advice very, very helpful for this. It makes complete sense to me. And it's part of this, this incredible thing. Because when you say that the, the, the actor sort of gives over to the writers, I have found something amazing in this. Because this is really our first time doing a long thing, right? We spent 20 mm. years doing movies. Yeah. Is in a way, we also feed so much off of what you do, right? Because... We give you something, then you, using your wits, make this, there's this uh, alchemy that happens. Mm. But then it, fe- unlike in a film, so that alchemy happens in a film and it's wonderful and it's this, but then we get to now absorb that when we play Come Back Again. Sure. And so the thing stacks in a way, right? You decide the way Axe is going to walk. Mm. We might have had an idea in our heads, but you decide the way he's mm. going to move across a room. Mm. Knowing that informs the rhythm of the speech that mm. we're going to write. Yeah. And so it's a, I mean, for me, that's that been a nice the wonderful there, yeah. surprise of that is like, oh, you can feed this over and he can sort of hit it back and then we can do the same. It's a, a, but it means there's a great spontaneity for you yes. too, which must be so nice for you. Um, or, or just a different skill that you'd have to deploy. Um, and, you know, in the same way, it's like... Um, you know, like you know, like like a player can play themselves into the first team. You know, an actor can play themselves into the first team. You play yourself 
into a starting position. 100%. That guy's not going to be on the bench at the beginning of the game. He starts now, or she starts, or they start now. Correct. Look what they gave us back. We 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 had some ideas, we had some smells, and we put some flavors out, and they came back with the whole thing, and that juiced you up, and then. Yes. So there's this lovely sort of back and forth, and then that as that's happening, you're so in in the in your thinking about it too. Let, let's just talk about the physicality because you've brought it up a couple times, and you've it's something that we've all talked about a bit. I remember on our we took a walk when you came in after the. I guess when you came in, yeah, to do, to do the pilot, we went and had dinner with a um, a wealthy business guy. And afterwards, as we walked away, you asked us a few questions about the way we thought the guy acts moved. You mm. said you had an idea mm-hmm. in your head about this shark-like mm. movement. Mm. And um, can you talk a little bit about how when you're reading something, just as an actor, I think it will be useful for people, creative people, how do you start to envision it? Does that come in? Does that all uh, help you make your decision of whether you're going to do a role? Do you start to envision the way this person sort of makes his way through the world? How does it? How does it hit you? Um, or is yeah. it an inter? Or is it just instinctive? No, the fashionable approach to acting is is that Stanislavskian method, which is inside out. So you find your internal, your interior emotional world, and then on top of that, you know the rest sort of evolves. Yeah. Your physicality, your exterior world evolves. Um, but with um, you know someone like Laurence Olivier, for example, would just say start with the shoes. So he that when that was his famous maxim, simplistic, but nevertheless it had truth in it. It's like I I I find his shoes, and yes. when I've got his shoes, I have his walk, and then I know what kind of man he is, and I start to feel. And that starts to inform the way he might be in in his interior world. So I I do a kind of uh, a sort of all out you know uh, full flanking attack on the character. Everything sort of comes at once, but I I always use animals. And I I love to use animals. I love the anthropomorphic nature of bringing an animal quite distinctly into somebody. And there might even be a period when I'm looking at the scripts for the first time where I'm explicitly that animal. And I'm sort of, I might be using, you know, all fours or whatever it happens to be. And it just by yourself in your room. Yes. You might be. Hopefully no one's watching. (laughs) Yeah. No, Uh, that's great. No, this is, this is what people don't understand about the work that all artists do. You, you acts in fact, in the end, of course, there's a shock like quality acts never stand still, but it, and this was a play on words as much as anything, but it, it fed sort of the predatory aspect of him. In the end, he became, for me, he became a cheetah. Yes. You know, uh, he's, not one of the, he's not one of the big cats, but he's nimble, he's fast, he's watchful. He is a cheetah. And he, and he, and he is a cheetah. Yes. You know? No, but I'm that, saying it not in my was, New York accent. And, he's a, and that uh, was the play on, you know, that was the pun for me that kind of, Helped as well, but it's interesting because when you find that it actually, I'm sure the inter- the way that it then becomes internal, is it does lead to the way you look at the world, right? If you're thinking yeah. of yourself as a cheetah, yeah, that affects the the rhythm in which you blink, yeah, no, not that, uh, so no, unconsciously, it, right? Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. It, it absolutely does. It, um, which is fascinating to yeah. me that, and you're willing to put yourself through that stuff still. That you have to kind of to do the thing. That yeah, you do. I like it. You know. I, the discipline required on these kinds of shows is you have to keep checking in with yourself all the time because, you know, you hand us a small movie every... 
two weeks, you yeah. hand us a small movie, 60 pages, one hour, okay? And I'm, I tend to be in that movie a lot. And so I have, amongst the filming days, which can be, you know, for people who don't know, they can be 13, 14-hour days, um, sometimes 15 if it goes crazy. But, you know, on top of that, you have to go home, you have to learn for scenes... You know, a lot of dialogue every three or four days. It just rolls and rolls and rolls, and that goes on for six months. So, um, and so we are not, we are not, we don't think about the burden. You know, we don't. The only way we think about the burden, no actor is, would dare would dare talk of the burden of 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 hard work. You know, I I made a speech. You were there only only three days ago to the crew. You just for, for whatever hours I work, oh, all of, yes. You know, uh, the crew. Um, you and David too. I mean, it's a different kind of work, but you know, you have ultimate control, full control of this show. So you have to do many different jobs and put different hats on. No, so. but I still agree with you. I mean, what the crew does I mean, and our pro- crew in particular, who are so, they never yeah. complain about it. Oh, they're no, just the banter, in there. The good humor remains. They, they're, you know, and you know, whatever you go, uh, you know, the only thing I would say, you know, now I want to make a defense for actors, but the, the only, the only thing I would say in this kind of long-form TV is that you never go home and switch it off. As I just said, I've always got to go home and do an hour's work. Yes. Always. Because I've got to keep learning lines. Because the, the train, when it leaves the station, it stops for nobody. So it just charges down the track for six months. You've got to get out 12 episodes. It's roughly 10, 11, 12 days an episode. You you got to be ready. You got you you got to have your lines learned. No yeah. one wants to be the guy who shows up. Well, that's the deal that we made with you and Paul at the beginning, which is we would the only you know we never jam you with a late script. So no. our part of the deal is we're going to give you the script well enough in advance. A lot of shows don't, and then your part of the deal is you're going to ha- come in prepared. But I would say the fact that you and Paul come in so prepared is part of why everybody else is prepared. Like I I feel that you guys just really the two of you and Maggie and Asia really do come in mm. having it. And I've mm. been on sets where people don't, mm. and it's a disaster. Mm. So, I mean, I've only found one or two day players in the whole time who haven't, because I think people know. If they're going to show up and play a scene with you or with Paul, yeah. they better be ready. You would hope just a simple form of respect would make a day player, you know, it's coming on to, so- you're a guest on someone else's show. Be ready. On other people's shows, yeah. Um, yeah, there was, uh, I, yes, I, we have we have that one incident, don't we, which uh, happened earlier this season when we, we we thought someone didn't really know their lines. We couldn't, under- we couldn't quite we understand we, it. Yeah, it was actually Paulie was in the scene, it wasn't me. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that that's weird. That's weird. That's like just you're out to lunch, dude. And you're just totally out you're to lunch. You're just like, come on. Play, we're we're yeah, all here to do this yeah, thing together. Yeah. But that's a, it's a small thing, but it actually yeah. makes a big difference. The Moment with Brian Koppelman is brought to you by Skillshare. Uh, it's actually perfect to talk about Skillshare uh, related to this conversation because uh, both Damien and I have been talking a lot about the way in which we, we do our craft. And Skillshare is an online learning community for creators. With more than 25,000 classes in design, business, and more, you'll discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and career. Look, you can take classes in social media marketing and mobile photography, creative writing, even illustration. It doesn't matter if, if this is like something you want to do for your career, if you're looking to discover a new passion or to start a side hustle or just gain new professional skills. Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. Look, I, I'm someone who's a lifelong learner. I think if you listen to this show, you know that I'm constantly doing all sorts of things to improve my skills. And uh, because I love 
the idea of making progress. I feel like when we're making progress, uh, we get this sense uh, that uh, living life is really worth it. And so for me, Skillshare makes uh, a lot of sense as a way to continue to add to your package of tools and skills and interests. Uh, so join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. You can get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering the moment with Brian Koppelman listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free to sign up. Go to Skillshare.com slash moment. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash moment to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash moment. Another thing I, I think people aren't, aren't aware of, talk a little bit about um, one, of my, I, you probably don't, one of my favorite things is watching you, that thing you're talking about in the morning, the nascent part of the day, when you're finding where the characters would move, how to stage a scene. And something I saw with you very early that I've, I've loved, Damien, is although everybody's rushing and moving, you're conscious of making sure that if you're moving in a scene, if you're standing or sitting or where you go, that it makes sense for you and the character. And it requires, well, what does that require for you? When we're there, because the way it starts is uh, we have what's called a, a private director's rehearsal in the, in the, before each scene. And that is yeah. just with the actors, Dave and me, and the, and the director of the scene. Yeah. But that's a very collaborative moment where you're sort of figuring out how to play the scene. And, and it seems to me you do approach those moments a bit like a conductor where you're, you're playing in the orchestra, but you're also leading the band. And how do you think that through? Because often we'll go a bunch of, they're very simple, and then you'll say, well, wait, let's, let's try it another way. Let's try it. Just it feels like you're feeling out where Axe would go and what he would do. And it, it, it feels very specific when you do it. Hmm. Interesting. That's probably an unconscious thing that you've identified in me that I would have to think hard about. I would say um, I would say that the greatest I use a sports analogy because we both love sports. Yeah, we both love sports. The, the greatest to use a sports analogy, the greatest sportsman in whatever sport they're playing managed to seem like they throw everything into slow motion mm. when they're in on the ball, over the ball, yes. holding the ball. And I don't always achieve this because sometimes, you know, you come full jacked up with coffee and it's just like, okay, let's start the day. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and so, and that has its own kind of energy and that can be fun too. It gives you something kinetic and interesting, but, but mostly I think what that is, is I think I'm trying to use an American sports analogy, you're trying to be in the pocket. I'm trying to be Brady. I'm trying to just sit in that pocket and all the craziness that That's goes on what around I'm talking you about. with the 70 other people on the set putting down wires, cables, lighting, someone's putting makeup on you, twitching your hood, your hoodie to whatever, all the things which are being done, you're just trying to, trying to put everything in slow motion. And it's about, it's about, I really need space for me. So I like to create a little bubble where I can be creative. And, it, and I try to make everything still. That's, I think that's what I'm doing. Well, it's, the stillness is a great thing. I think that's what I'm trying to do. Which, to me, it ties into um, this battle that we all face. But I think for an actor, especially an actor leading a thing, um, is despite all of that, finding a way to be comfortable in your skin. 
in that situation, not yeah. to give in to the to all those pressures, to be aware of them because you're not going to make the day go long. There's no sense of time being wasted. It's actually an incredible economy of time, but it is still like a moment of gathering, I'd say, mm. where you're where we're all kind of gathering, but you seem to have, it's, it's funny to me that it's unconscious on your part, because I note it all the time. There's this moment where you're just going to gather and say, is this how we should all move? Are we, are we all good? You're kind of looking at the other actors. Mm. And it's a nice moment of sort of saying, it is a huddle. It's a huddle and saying, are we good? Is this the play we're calling? And it's a, it's a nice little, it's a nice little moment. Yeah, well, because my, my, you look, uh, another way of viewing this, the, again, this long form drama is, you know, uh, often, Scenes emerge instinctively, and they are—they are—it's uh, unanimous. It, it's very clear the way uh. a scene should unfold, but it's not always. Um, and you don't have very long to work it all out, so you have to move quickly. But I—it's important to me that we we all feel comfortable with what we're doing. There are, I, I mean, I suppose I could impose myself a bit more given, you know, the well, role I play within the show, but I don't, I don't, I don't, you never wa- do I don't want to. And I, um, and I think I, I do want to just take a moment to check what we're doing because my feeling about what goes, what the audience see is that actually they only ever really see rehearsals. You don't, how can you set anything? I mean, truly, in a sort of, in a creative process, how can you really set anything in those few quick minutes at 6.30 in the morning on a Monday when you are all gathering yourself? You just all have a sense. You're sort of smelling out and nudging towards the best way to play this, also in an economic way because we have to shoot it in a certain way so we can make our day. So there are all different kinds of constraints on that moment. And um, my sense always is, okay, I mean, this may not be it, but together, a, a group of people, a creative, group of creative people came together and in a few short minutes, we worked out that we think this is as good as we, we have for now. But for me, that still feels like a rehearsal. It still feels like the first stab at something. And you just hope that that first stab at something works well. But it's but wonderful. It's still, that's still the thing that goes out to millions of people six months later. It wasn't, it, it was, it wasn't honed and refined and finessed over three, four weeks chat. It just happened in three or four minutes, right there. That's what I mean by the spontaneity. The by definition, of it's the kind of larval in a way. Yeah, it is. Right, right. No, by definition, it's yeah. like larval because you're right. We're not doing seventy takes. Yeah. We're not doing the Michael Mann thing where you go, you kick all of that, um, the energy out, then you go through the fourteen takes where you're dead, and then you find yeah. the new way. Right? Yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. It just doesn't exist in this. The the difference being over the long haul, and this ties into something I'm. Um, I've always been fascinated by, which is this relationship between lead actors on a long-running show and the directors who come in. How, how do you, uh, how quickly do you make a determination as to whether the, you're gonna sort of basically be handling it or whether you're gonna be engaging in a collaboration with the director who's there for for ten days? You got a twinkle in your eye, Brian. <laughs> what I will say, <laughs> what I will say is, um, look, uh, 
I think the director that is most loved again. I can't. Oh, I, I can't overemphasize the 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 constraints of time. You know, time, as we all know, just very simply equals money. And a director who is well organized has can show everybody that he has watched the show, yes. understands the show, yes. knows who we are knows what the house style is. Of course, by the time they come to see us on set, they've had several meetings with you and been in the van looking at locations for a week or two. So, you know, if at that point they come and then they're efficient and they shoot the show well, I think that is the director that's most loved. If you get a director who also is sensitive enough to character and to story that he can offer some interesting little insights, then that's just a bonus for an actor. That's really nice. But I think I don't expect that from a director in this genre. Yes. I, I never I expect that. that. And you expect it less come season three or four when the characters are so established that directors often defer to you, sometimes too much. You know, and 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 then sometimes they get it wrong and they overstep. So, so I'm going to come in and shake this show up. I'm a big fan of this show. I think we can really pull Bobby in this direction and sure. Chuck in that direction. Now, I'd play with that guy or lady for sure if 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 they can show me that their early insights are interesting. Right. If if you if you just know it's wrong, it's difficult for them to to win respect back yeah that makes sense it's a hard job i think it's a difficult job oh i think it's the hardest job they're the they're the carpet bagger they travel on their own with the, with just with their bag and they go in and out of shows i think it must be really nice for them to return you know they start to feel well i have yes I, we have a, I few have a now stake in this back, show yes. i i'm i'm part of this show i yes, but otherwise no, i think it must be very lonely I, yeah, I, I think it's a difficult gig. Speaking think. of, you know, lonely, you know, you're far away from your family much of the time and you work it out great. How and and with the grind of all this, how important is actual like the physical fitness piece of this because it seems to me like I, you know, yesterday said something to you like, well, I I, I was eating some terrible thing and you looked at me and I said, "Well, I exercise." And you were like, "I exercise too." And you had worked all night the night before. So, how what does that do for you mentally? Does it is it as much mental as physical for you, the, the amount of sort of physical fitness that you engage in, why is it so central to you? Um, well, for starters, I should say, the reason I had exercised that morning is because I broke my knee <laughs> playing yeah. football, soccer, around the corner from here at 7.30 yes. in the morning on a, on a cold, like minus 18 sub-zero Thursday morning, uh, which is a game, you know, that... Well, actually, Showtime would be within their rights probably to say, Damien, would you mind just not playing football for six months? But I think everybody knows, you know, everyone's got to take some exercise. Yes. And you might just be in a gym, you know, just lifting some weights and put your back out. So I think everyone everyone wants you to take exercise, be happy in yourself and feel 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 good in yourself. I, For me, I've never been a gym bunny at all. There have been one or two jobs where I have specifically gone to put weight on. Yeah. 
because I'm actually I'm like a rake. I'm I'm a skinny, pale yeah. English dude, and I need to bulk up. Getting fat for me isn't the thing. I just go really skinny. Right. So it's like okay, I'm going to play that dude, and he's a war hero, or whatever. I better. I need, I need to go find some muscles from somewhere, so I go build up. But um, for me, it's more about athletics. It's more about having been an athlete. Uh, I always. I always was in the football teams, rugby teams, cricket teams, tennis, whatever. I've always played those things all through school. And just the thought, particularly of not playing football, soccer, just to reiterate, um, you know, when I was 23, 4, 5, 6, just because I was now a professional actor and I I no longer was at school where someone was organizing my football for me, I went looking for football teams. And so I have played, and now I'm 48, and I've played for 25 years solidly, and I fully expect to be playing again once I get this knee fixed, which is actually... We'll uh, edit that out to 38 for James Bond. Just Thank, so, you, just thank you very his, much. Yeah. yeah, I think Bond has Bond. to be... When Bond asks for a blanket. <laughs> I think Bond from has Q. to be... Oh, can I have a blanket? Oh, when Q comes out, Bond, would you like a blanket? Are you, are you cold? I put a blanket saying, over your was, knees. He misspoke. It's 38 uh, and still looks, yeah. let me say, great in the tux. Uh, <laughs> let me say, still <laughs> really looks. But does sport, do you find that it centers you in some way also, playing a- athletics? Totally. It's, um, it's the most therapeutic thing. I find that in art galleries to be the most therapeutic places I can be. 90 minutes chasing a stupid ball or actually not chasing a ball but thinking um gym sort of it's sort of geometrically about your space on the field and your relationship to your fellow players with whatever system you're playing in and where the ball is and where the opposition is i find that that involvement that sort of mathematical sort of involvement to be totally totally therapeutic and at the same time of course you're taking exercise and um uh and and then also i enjoy i enjoy the the skill factor of it which is you know the the deftness of touch the feints the moves the this the sort of balletic quality of it i think that's partly why i enjoy being on stage i feel very similar when i'm on stage about you know your position and your relationship to actors on stage and how positions on stage and maybe this is a little bit what yeah, you were alluding to. Yeah, this gets back to that thing of finding, of finding I, where you fit in the space and with everybody else. Because I think that's very articulate. It can I do be, too. It's very, very articulate the way people, where people stand in a room. Um, and and, and of course, artists have to consider that stuff too, right? When you say you love an art gallery, it's, yeah, it's, it's composition. A, I mean, artists are constantly thinking about negative space and yeah. the geometry of all this stuff. And so that must just make sense to you in a certain I, that, well, it makes I, sense to you or gets you out of yourself in some yeah, way. Yeah, no, it 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 does. I'm I'm very very happy on a football field. When you're acting, uh, and because one of the things, in, I mean, everything you're saying speaks to when you're playing sport, this state of flow that we get into, which is right. You're looking at all this stuff, and then you're trying to get in this, or when it's the best is when that stuff's just kind of happening, mm. like when you're just flying. And sometimes I describe the writing thing. It's most of the time it's grindy and hard. And then you do it because there are these, there are these periods of time where you feel, or I feel, both like uh, in the ether and kind of just tethered to the earth a little bit, mm-hmm. really present and floating. Can that still happen to you in acting? Are there, 
when you're acting, are there moments, is it always very conscious? Do you ever have moments where you're sort of able to disappear into it? Is that something worth chasing or do you try not to chase it? Um, I don't think you ever disappear. A hundred percent. I don't think you do. I think, but I think actors do something very conscious and very um, powerful, which is that you imagine a new reality. You place yourself in that parallel reality. And, you know, when I'm playing Bobby, Axe, and I'm in Axe Cap, I feel totally and fully that I am Bobby Axelrod in the world of billions at Axe Cap at work with my co-workers. But am I ever not Damien? No. There's always a piece of me conscious of the, of the, of the, of the other reality, which is, you know, 30 hairy dudes, you know, standing, pointing cameras and yes. booms and whatever and and, and it's hard, good you chose straight work. not it's good you chose straight work not <laughs> pornography as you're living because <laughs> yeah. i think then that would prove perhaps difficult for you but uh, my pornographic work would be straight that's no yes that, I'm, but still Very, slightly uh, different i'm just suggesting that that might be different uh, no but it's the same right i mean i was I'm young talking, i needed the money right, of course even the italian stallion even the stallone even the thing that i'm thinking of though uh, even the thing i'm describing with writing of course, I'm not suddenly going to start speak writing in tongues. I'm aware that I'm writing an episode of Billions. Sure. But it's just that you're in... I find sometimes I'm in a state where uh, it's less of me as as Brian pushing it along and it's somehow um, a fusing of me with the world of the show, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. Where it's, where it's just... It's just kind of... You go, oh, I laid one down. You know, it's that feeling when you know... Does yours we happen mostly it. when you're writing dialogue and character? Yes. Oh, yeah, dialogue. Rather than that slightly more sticky mathematical Ugh. thing of arranging no. structure. In fact, only... Yes, sometimes in arranging structure you'll get a, an insight, but it's always that that's the satisfaction of problem solving, yeah. which is what you're talking... Yeah, know, which is which a is different w- w- thing. A different thing, right? That's a great feeling of relief and, and like, uh, ah, that... Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're walking around and it's like bunged up and then suddenly it like goes straight. Yeah. The thing I'm talking about is only dialogue. Only I'm writing a speech for you, and mm. suddenly, it, suddenly it's just already coming out of your mouth. It's it's hard sure. to explain it, sure. but I'm gone. I'm not yeah. really there yeah. pushing it forward. I kind of yeah. look afterwards and I go, "Oh yeah, that's funny. That's good. That that kind of rhymes." And uh, that's the moment I'm sure that sometimes, it, or I imagine. Well, that's probably. Um, I mean, truth be told, those are probably those are probably the scenes I find easiest. Yeah, to learn. Sure. So when when you're fully flowing, yes, and we have a connection. That's right. And I hear, and, and see it just it, makes sense and, in that and way. And then you and yeah, and yes. the, what the scenes which is slightly harder to learn. Maybe you had to bump and grind a bit with Dave. And yeah, here, just to, it's a bit more elbow know, bumping and grinding with that's Dave. That's fine. Anything you but, want to say, you know, no more elbow grease. We've known each other a long time. We have. Oh, but, since we're kids. But uh, um, elbow grease. You know whatever. Yes. You know, yeah. Let's talk about Blinkist. You know that I dig Blinkist. And I dig Blinkist because I love reading. And not only that, I like talking about books. And I like engaging with people about books. And I love, hey, to quote the new word, I love all the learnings I get from books. I was at a seminar recently and people kept talking about the learnings they got from books. And um, But it is true. Nothing 
really replaces a book. The thing is, there are too many books out there to read, especially while I'm making the season of Billions. I cannot read as much as I want to. And so there's this app, and it's called Blinkist. And what Blinkist is, it's the only app that takes the best key takeaways or learnings, the need-to-know information for thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them. Blinkist is made of busy people like you, who want to get the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. With an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy to finish four books a day while you are on the go. How many people are using Blinkist right now? Like 8 million people are using Blinkist. It is a massive and growing library, self-help, business, health, history books. Look, I like Blinkist because it is, I don't know, the easiest way that I've found to get the key uh, takeaways from books without reading the whole book. And also, it's a great way to find out, hey, do I want to read this whole book? If you love what you get from Blinkist, then uh, you can read the whole book. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash moment to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash moment to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash moment. All right, let's let's turn from craft for a moment. Um, Here... You know, I, I, when I started the show, I was really interested in, in um, these what I call inflection points, moments of failure or success when people had to make some sort of – had to process it. And often it's failure, but I have found that also great moments of success can be equally hard. Can, so can you talk about like who you were, where you were right before Band of Brothers and right after? Like, and how you processed what happened to you with Band of Brothers? Because I do find that with that kind of success and that kind of platform – the first year or two after that can be bumpy. So wh- wh- who were you before you got that part? Where were you in your life? How were you living? And, and did, were you aware that it was going to change your life? Um, well, that's a big question. I, I would say right before Banner Brothers, I made something with Peter Kosminski called Warriors, which was about uh, Grapple 1 and 2, which was the UN peacekeeping forces in Bosnia in 92-93. And there were a bunch of, you know, young, thrusting, up-and-coming Brit actors. And I, I, I had only gone to drama school to go on stage. I, I, wanted to be, I wanted to be Olivier and Richardson and Gilgood and go in the West End and go to the Royal Shakespeare Company and, and create theatre companies with friends and, and be, be the British theatre, you know. And then I very quickly saw, as a few peers of mine just took off, they just took off out of London and were making, suddenly had made a couple of big movies. And these big movies were big movies like Train Spotting or Shakespeare in Love. And I, and I saw this huge world opened up to me. I was going, wait a second, there's, there's a canvas out there that we can work on with different types of people from different countries making, making creating stories uh, in a totally different way, which isn't just theatre, just here in London or going up to Stratford-on-Avon. And, and I, 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 by the time I got Warriors, which was just the year before Banner Brothers, and they're totally unconnected, but the time of my life is important, it, I was just starting to think, maybe I'm one of these long-haired, sort of flowery, slightly sort of um, overly expressive actors that's going to have a big stage career ah. and the camera will never contain. I'll never work out how to just bring it all down and play with the camera in, in a more microscopic, you know, 
just felt. You really thought, had this thought, this I worry? I absolutely thought, okay, I'm going to start making my peace with this. This isn't going to happen to oh, me. That's fascinating. And I went and auditioned for Warriors with this, with this multi-BAFTA winning director called Peter Kosminski, who later directed me as Henry VIII in Wolf Hall. Um, and he... He literally said to me, I'm taking a risk with you. You haven't done much of this. You've been doing lots of theater. And even as small as the industry is in England compared to here, just simply because of the, the amount of people we have there, um, there was still a categorizing of theater actors and TV actors. Well, I don't know if you're really a TV actor. You do lots of theaters. Well, give me a chance. I'm 25. Right. I'm just starting or whatever. So I know, but you see, you're doing theater. I said, well, give me a TV gig and then I'll be a TV yeah, actor right. too. That's how so, it works. And, and I talked with actors about that. I was talking with an actor only here last night and they're, them having the same frustrations about the way in which you get compartmentalized. And so I said to Peter, because I said, just look, I, I am a little nervous about doing this. This is a, clearly going to be a serious drama. You're a serious director and got these young actors around me um, like Johan Griffith and Matthew McFadden and people like that. Who's, you know, Matthew's now in succession uh, in HBO and he's a good old I don't pal. know what that Sorry. is. Sorry. Uh, good old pal of mine. And we, we just... But he said, I will. Don't worry. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. If I feel you're too big or too expressive or you're starting to perform because you're used to throwing it out to the 900th person at the back of the auditorium, I'll just tell you to bring it down and just think it. Think it. And... Um, but it was only then, really, that I just started to feel, and it was just the year before Band of Brothers. And Band of Brothers came along, and I, I was just another snot-nosed punk, one of 200 English actors who would just put more uh, auditions down on tape. In, in Is that what you were doing, auditioning on tape, like in some a casting Yeah, like everybody, in, in damp basements in Soho, London. Yeah. And going, yeah, yeah, great. Send it to L.A. It'll sit on a shelf and gather sure, Tom Hanks. Like, so so you didn't really city. think Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were picking you out of the crowd? They had no idea who I was. Nobody had any idea who I was. I'd, been, I'd played Laertes on, on Broadway in 95, which was four, uh, four years previously. But, um, you know, I'll tell you a funny anecdote about that. But Steven and Tom didn't know that was me. They, nobody knew who I was. It was, a, it was a needle in a haystack piece of casting. And it was Tony Toe, who was this dynamic... Uh, uh, Prada-wearing uh, producer from L.A. who would come and did all the interviews, would fly to London tirelessly and Australia. They were auditioning all over the world. And nobody had a script yet. We didn't have the 10 hours of Banner Brothers. We were just given sides, pieces of episodes which were starting to come together. And we were all asked to read different characters. I read one character, then I read the next character on my recall. Then I got another recall. And they asked me to read this guy, um, Major Dick Winters. And they said, why don't you read this guy? Have a look at this guy. And then I came back again for a fourth time. And this All thing, in England or did you go to England? All in London. This was going on over three or four months. Because wow. he went back to to look at tape, to speak to Stephen and Tom, to right. speak to thing Auntie Mary and Bob and Joe, and then they came back. How focused are you on it at the time? Are, were not, you willing to take another? Like, had another job came up while you were auditioning, no. would you have taken the other I job? I was working. I was working all through this. I was doing. I was doing a British TV thing, which was uh, loosely the. A parallel would be a thirty-something type right. drama, um, even though <clears throat> I'm still in my twenties. Yes. Um, uh, and um, anyway, so this went on for three or four months. I really was thinking not much about it, except before the final audition. I was saying, 
you know Winters is the guy. Right, that's the lead guy. In the and thing. I was going, oh, uh, oh. And they went, yeah, he's the guy. Have you? And friends were saying, you know, you've read him in a couple times now. Uh, I went, oh, yeah, oh, I should, I should start to maybe concentrate on this. And then Tony came for one last time, Tony Toe. I read one more time, and he just, he just, he just, we walked straight out of the room and said, Damien, that's fine, amazing, we've seen enough. And he said. Uh, how would you like to fly to LA Tuesday, meet Stephen and Tom? Oh, and it was Christ. in this basement, and it was a very, that was my Hollywood moment, was right there in a basement in London. And he then did the most hilarious thing, but I love him for it. He literally picked up the phone, said, do you have your passport? And he picked up the phone, he said, he called his assistant and said, I want Damien on a flight to LA. Uh. He's coming to LA. And, and, it was the, and that was the moment I went, ah. Uh, I rode motorcycles at the time. I put my helmet down. I made some bad joke about I let me call my grandmother to cancel lunch, and I, you know, <laughs> oh, and I, Lord. you know, I didn't. You're right. I, I had no lunch with my right, grandmother. Right, no, of course. But and 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 three days later, literally within days. Now, was, do you become nervous? Did you well, become nervous in those three days? Everything you just sort of padding your way towards it because yes. everything in you is just saying, "Stay calm, stay calm." <laughs> But then I'm put in first class right. on a BA flight. Then I'm driven to Shutters on the Beach. You know Shutters yep. on the Beach. I'm thinking, wait a minute. They're, these, they're taking care of this me. This might be serious. Yeah, so, this might happen. And it keeps going forward. And, and then I go do my interview and I go to those casting suites down in Santa Monica Boulevard right down like on 23rd. Oh, so you didn't go to Amblin or DreamWorks? No, it, it, was, was, it was in those casting suites in those in those crappy sort of low slung buildings low rise buildings they're in Santa Monica on about 21st and 22nd yeah, I know just where they are you know, on where Olympic Deb Aquila used to have her offices or, there yeah, too exactly. I know right where that well, is exactly so, yes. so I walk in there <laughs> the best bit of the whole four month sort of adventure was I walk in and there's a guy sitting waiting on a chair who if Dick Winters had spawned his own twin <laughs> was this guy. And I look at him and I go, well, well what, what did they, why did they make all the fuss? Why did they spend all the money? I'm like, this guy is, is Dick, Dick Winters. Winters. And anyway, so I go, hey, dude, um, what are you doing here? He says, yeah, I'm here to just meet about Dick Winters. I said, well, th- of course you are. <laughs> he was there to meet about Dick so, Winters too? Anyway, so, so, uh, this this was the, so we go in and no sorry I sit down he goes in there's a brief conversation he comes out quite soon afterwards only like two minutes afterwards and he shakes my hands and he goes shake my hand and he goes looks me down and he goes good luck man and there was just something so generous in the way he said good luck man I knew he was telling me it wasn't his I knew he was telling me and I walked in and I'd already met Tom who we'd already, sorry, we'd already done on one audition with Tom who was in the middle of filming Castaway and he was in the six months downtime because they, uh, they the split because be- yeah, he was growing the beard. The beard. Yeah. So he just was like two small eyes, you know, sort of peering out of this sort of head of hair, you know, when I met him in, in the audition and he had played every part and Ron Livingston had been there with me. And so we'd done a bit of auditioning and this was me coming back. And 
I'd been told by everyone how well it was going. And so it was just when I then saw this Yeah, to guy, see the other like, guy. It's like, what the hell is that for? Yeah. This is, this is the guy. I mean, I'm, uh, if I'm casting, I'm casting this I won't guy. ask you until we're off the mic who that guy is, but you could just say that. Did that guy end up having a career? I haven't seen him again. Ah. Uh, but that doesn't mean anything. So you, wa- so you so then we you walk, walk in. in and no one has um, – I've slightly jumped the shock. I'm sorry. I'm overexcited about, about the story of this guy. But what had happened is because my audition the day before had gone so well, I'd met up with a pal of mine who was over from London. And we'd got out and, to oh. use an English phrase, just got rat-assed. Oh, no. And gone out till four in the morning. And I, I, I went home, you know, in a pretty bad – So wait. So the timeline is you got to L.A. I, and actually the first thing you did was audition. That went very yeah, well. that went very well. That went well. Um, but Spielberg wasn't there at that no, time. No. And it was just Tom. And I went out, got rat And that went well. Then you were like, I'm going to get this. You got and, and then I And then I got a call like now, at Steve 8 o'clock in the morning, meeting. like on three or four hours sleep. And yes. I, I was like, hello, shaking. And Meg says, um, hey, the guys would love to have you back in and uh, meet Steven. Can you be here at 10? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, like, anyway, so that's when I had, you know, I had so f- what happens 15 when you walk cups in? of coffee and three showers. And so I walk in and Steven is there. He shakes, he shakes my hand. Tom's there. He shakes my hand. Uh, uh, Meg Lieberman is there. She shakes my hand. Tony toes there. But almost immediately, Steven just goes, would you like with an old Panasonic camcorder, just goes, Tchum! right. The, the and camera just, just goes right up to his yeah, eye, right to his eye. Yeah. Thank you. Radio. Yeah. And he, <laughs> yeah, Look, Damien's got his hand up like a camera. My but, hand. My hand is up to my eye. Yes, I'm just, I am miming. I'm, I'm just letting the, the audience understand. So he just goes, and it really doesn't come down for the whole thing. As so he's he, talking to you Videoing too? me, he's chatting, and we talk about so great. He says, Damien, I'm so sorry. It's really nice to meet you, but I'm going to have to go and maybe uh, in a half hour because my 12-year-old kid is playing a soccer game. It's a big game. i got to go support him. I said, well, I love soccer too. And he said, well, and this is when we have this hilarious conversation about um, – uh, and I said, actually, we've met before because I was on Broadway in 95, four years ago, with Rafe playing Hamlet, and I was Laertes, and you guys all came to support Rafe because you'd done Schindler's List. And uh, we met in the stairwell backstage. Oh, that's and we, great. And we shook hands, and Tom in his beard went, you were in Hamlet? <laughs> I went, yeah. You played Laertes? He said, yeah. Hmm. In retrospect, you were quite good in that role. <laughs> That's great. It was great. It was a really weird sort oh, of, that's really sort of great. semi-recovery from saying I was there. I don't remember you, but I liked you. Oh, that's Right fan- now in this moment, phenomenal. I remember liking you. Now was- I remember. Were you doing this all in an American accent? I, no. So I you- wasn't, I hadn't got into my, that particular process, which I use now. No, I met as a, as a Brit and, and, and then I went. Did they tell you in the room you got it? Uh, they... The next great moment is after the, um, after the, so Damien, how would you like to fly to LA Tuesday? Meet Stephen and Tom. Stephen and Tom said to me into the room, so boot camp starts April. Oh, and they Boom. shook your hand. Shook my hand. Oh, man. Congratulations. We'd like you to play Lieutenant Winners. And, and um, you still had, by this point, you'd read the whole thing, so you understood what the... Well, there was no whole script, but I'd got hold of Banner Brothers, the book, and I'd been flicking through it. By then it, you and knew, like, oh, wow. So did you know your whole? Did you were you aware that your whole life had changed? Um, you know, I was aware that I was having that Hollywood moment. You were you were actually aware of it. I I was because it was it was really exciting when I was when I was put on that plane and taken care of like I was uh, you know like an old school film star, but I wasn't. 
And I was putting shutters on the beach, and I was just walking around going, look at this. But that can set you up. I mean, I've been in that spot. That can set you up for the crushing disappointment, right? Because you hadn't gotten the job yet. No. I I was just having that creeping feeling things were going well. Yes. When they shook your hand, did you – what did you do after that? Like, were you – so you shake their hand. You call your people. You say, I got the – I think I got the part. Yeah. I think this is happening. I called nobody. I I blushed. I – I I stammered and just went, oh my god, this is this is amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, you want to get out of the room really quickly and, after um, that. Great, great. Um, you don't say anything. You bumble. You know, yes. I, I'm. This is amazing. Thank you. Um, it's yes. great to meet you. And then you like. Hope no. your son. Hope, hope your son's team wins. <laughs> and you go out. Yes. And then you go film for how long did the whole thing take? It was nine months filming. Um, we did two weeks boot camp at Longmore Camp, which is an old, um, unmodernized uh, uh, army base in uh, about an hour and a half outside of London. Yeah. Um, where in fact there were a lot of, um, a lot of sort of a bit like a film set. There were mock streets and the facades of buildings built at this place because they did a lot of counterterrorism work there. Right. So and um, then I had to lead my unit through counterterrorist exercises where the guys who were teaching us, one of whom had two of whom had actually served in Vietnam, one who'd served in the Falklands, one who one who jumped into Panama. You know, these were guys just, you know, picking us off from first floor windows. I was like a sieve by the end of this exercise. I had so many holes in me. I'm picturing the end of the you Kubrick, just, you know, the Kubrick war movie. I'm picturing the end of that when everybody's just getting... Well, Thin Red Line. Yeah. 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 Uh, not Thin Red Line, the other one. The, oh. With Private Pile, you know, um, uh, with Vincent uh, D'Onofrio yes. and Matthew Modine. Oh, getting well, there, we'll getting there. Full, Full metal, metal jacket. Thank you. At the end, you know, that whole end sequence when they're in that kind of city Kubrick place. Kubrick is a Thin Red Line anyway. I got that wrong. Uh, no, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, Terrence Malick. It's the other guy. It's similar. Listen, yeah. it's a similar thing. It's the one with a decade different. guy. With, yes, exactly. Um, when was the period of time when you were moved to L.A., when you would go to the comedy club by yourself? Like, when were you in L.A. alone? Oh. Was that before? Yeah, you know, uh, yes, because I had my... Um, when I left school, we do something at, at home, especially if, you know, from a sort of privately educated background, which I am, you take what they call a gap year. And it's... Frankly, it's still really a hangover from... from from doing a sort of um, a tour of the antiquities. It's sort of an old hangover from an old Edwardian idea that a young man would travel through Europe and sure. see the antiquities. It's your version of a rumspringer, what the Amish do with the rumspringer where they get that period of time. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So you get your year. All it means is you put a backpack on your thing. You buy your Euro traveler ticket. You go for a month. Mine was, I went to Africa for three months to Botswana and Zimbabwe. And... Uh, and then I had another three months where I and and I had six weeks in LA, and it was all set up through a friend of my parents who knew somebody who knew somebody who got me into the photographic department of Fox on Five, and it was ninety ninety. 91 so it was right at the beginning of in living color and the simpsons and i was just i was just the bitch who photocopied and made people cups of not tea because it was la so it was coffee i made coffee and i and i did that and i i was so nerdy 
I was so British and so green. I actually went to, and so, looking back on it, so much a product of my upper class, privately educated background. I went to work. Uh, someone also fixed me up a deal rental at rent rec even though I wasn't 25, and I drove a Ford Pinto, a white Ford Pinto that oh, I man. thought I thought was the coolest car you were styling in the world. And I had a brass-buttoned, double-breasted blue blazer <laughs> and a bow tie. And I went to work. That's true. I'm absolutely not kidding. And I went to work thinking, this is how I should present myself. I'm going to the photographic department in living color. And, uh, I can't believe you're not Bond. And, I mean, and when you two, think about that. And these two dudes called Mike and Sean, who were two Venice hippies with goatee beards. They had to wear the stupid little valet white thing with their little black bow tie. And I knew nobody. In L.A. You were just alone. And I just wanted to be friends with the guys who were parking my car. <laughs> and they wouldn't talk to me. Because it's just like, who the fuck is yeah, this? What is this kid? Who is who, what this is he dick? thinking? Who is this guy with the bow tie and the double-breasted blue blazer with the brass? But I probably even had anchors on the thing. I looked like, you know, I looked like, what's his name? Out of <laughs> still um, out of Some Like It Hot. You know, when Tony yes. Curtis goes goes full billionaire at the end. And um, anyway, and they became my pals. They became You my did pals. it. You pulled it off. Yeah. And, you know, I would go and smoke an occasional bit of weed with them. And one of them, uh, Mike, was a great bassist. And, and you Sean, were a good guitar player and singer, so you could do that at least. Yeah. You know how to play guitar. Sort of, you do. Yeah, you know yeah, how to play so guitar I, I, did, I, did, I did a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, just after that, in fact, yeah, it's when I bought my first motorcycles and I and I went street performing in, in the south of France. Yeah, I used to go busking all through the south of France yeah, for a month at a time. But they were my pals. They became my pals. And then I... And because they were my age, you know, I was working with everybody who was. Were you reading like uh, Kerouac and stuff then? Yeah, I yeah, I was yeah, on the road. No, and it's the best time. Electric Kool Aid Acid Test was yeah. coming, and I was growing my hair, and you know, I'd come out of a very straight, academic, you know, Tony, well, private private system, private schooling system in England. That was fantastic yesterday. Where we were talking about Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. Oh my god. I and how great that book is. And like someone on set had never, I forget, someone we liked had never read it. Soda. Oh, I guess Soda had never read it. Who's? And he's now going to read. He'll now read he the book. He will read And he'll it. understand all about it. I, I, and he'll know, get more specials because of it. I, too, I, too, uh, had the experience of um, overdressing in my first thing. This is, I'll tell you sometime on set, where I showed up. <laughs> with my first, Metallica. My first, Not with Metallica. Yeah, my first, yes. <laughs> my first job as an A&R person, because of the way it happened, you know, I because what happened, I jumped up levels, right? I didn't go in as an assistant. Because of what I had done, I, I bumped up and I was made sure. an executive at 21. Yeah. So I show up, and the guys I worked with had signed Motorhead, and suicide, and the another guy had signed Robert, and these guys were like the real deal A and R people, and like you know they're in. I remember the first day, like I mean they're in just like you yeah. know they give a fuck khakis and a black whatever, yeah, yeah, and I yeah. show up in like a tweed sport coat <laughs> and a floral tie. I'm enjoying thinking, this immensely. And a floral tie, uh, and, you know, and, you know, and they just looked at me and I was dead. But you know what happens is I was dead for months then. Right, because who I come walking in like right. that, yeah. and then I'm just the jerk. For it took months to get them to talk to me. You had to turn them around. Yeah, because I'm, suddenly I'm the douche in the 
Because I thought, well, I have to, you know, well, I'm an executive now. I have to. It's terrible. So I relate to this completely. All right, a few more we things. We have a great, you know, we have a great, I just have to say this because it's, it's such a moving. We have this little radio program at home in England, which is, oh, God, I forget what it's called. But What's it's, the idea of it? The, the, the idea simply is that they connect, to, uh, that someone comes on the radio and is able to say thank you to somebody that did something extraordinary for them that was a stranger that they've never seen oh, again, but fantastic. it was a moment in their life and they come on and they say thank you. It puts a lump in my throat talking about it. And they say thank you for some extraordinary thing that someone did when they were 23, maybe saved their life, maybe, uh, or, or maybe just was, was so kind to them that they, they helped their daughter do so, or whatever it happens to be. And then some, if anyone hears that program and happens to remember that they did this small thing, they can tune in later and say, people very rarely do but it's just this very um i i i feel like i would say th- i would love to know where mike and sean are those two guys who were the who were parking cars. mike and sean write me on twitter or yeah. write damien on twitter pa- sean i know ended up going to film school i think in tel aviv uh he had to go and serve and do two his two years military service but then he I think he went to film school well if someone knows sean and mike amazing. and it's possible they're listening because they do know you became damien lewis just a couple more things before I, I let you get out of here. Um, so Band of Brothers comes out, and suddenly you are not only consider- famous, Damien, but you and – it, and it's interesting because then it, it didn't go right away as it could have. The, the, you know, you're done with that. And I remember – I've told you this story before, but it's something I love, which is right when Band of Brothers came out, David and I happened to be walking through the offices of Endeavor, and you were walking into an office we were walking out of. I hadn't seen Band of Brothers yet, but we you walked – You've never told, I, you've never told I've me told this. you this story. I, maybe the first night we met. But so we – you walk you're, – you're in Endeavor. You're with a group of people, and you're walking into a room, and David yeah. and I have walked out of the room. Yeah. And we walked down the hall. I hadn't seen Band of Brothers yet, but David had. And David said, that's Damian Lewis. Someday we got to work with that guy. He's amazing. And so wow. we'd had this idea of working with you from then. We were, whatever year, when, what year did that come out? 201. So cut, right. cut we to were, 15 we were, years Yeah, later. 15 years ago, right? I mean, I, we were young, you know, in our 30s then. So, uh, and I'm 52 now. So uh, since then, but I, what I remember was sort of, then I went and watched it. And of course, I agreed with David. But the thing was, you were the name on everybody's lips for this period of time. Mm. And that led to you having to make certain choices and and... A couple of them were great, and then some of them were had all the great auspices, and the movies didn't mm. turn out good. Mm. How did people treat you differently for that, in that moment and after? But more importantly, how did you sort of come back to yourself and figure out, okay, now I have to, I have to figure out how I want to plot my career because mm. those moments are hard of success like that in a way. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, I mean, I mean, what luck. What luck. Tom Hanks gave me this golden introduction to his agent, to other agents, to all the best agents in L.A. I ended up uh, choosing Endeavor. I really liked Brian Swartstrom. He didn't throw himself at me. He As was cool and, and classy and elegant and seemed to have taste. And, um, and, I, uh, and I did, of course, have choices, but I, I still felt very... Green. I still felt very removed, even though, you know me. I'm ambitious to do well. I want to. I want to work with the best people uh, on the on the biggest canvases possible and uh, intimate ones too. But I, I, I just still was. 
I still was very caught up. I'd spent, you know, just prior to making Banner Brothers, I'd just been at the Royal Shakespeare Company for two years. I was making theatre at home. I was, I was very much just a young English actor in London doing theatre, and this seemed like... Uh, this seemed like the anomaly. It didn't seem like this now, I'm going to go do other things. And of course it went very well. And, you know, uh, if I may say so, I was nominated for a Golden Globe right. yeah, that year. I was beaten by someone, you know, you, I don't think you've heard of him, James Franco, <laughs> uh, who won because he played James Dean. I mean, it's easy to play James Dean. <laughs> James. Awesome. Next time I see him. He was also the guy who was sitting there to play Dick Winters. <laughs> I don't know what happened that was to you. that guy. It was you. Uh, no, so you're there, though. You got nominated. Um, it went very well. It went very well. It all went very well. And then, yes, things happened. Uh, and I was offered some big movies. And I took a big movie um, with, with, the, with the gorgeous Larry Kasdan. It was Dreamcatcher. It, it didn't go very well. In terms of just how it was received, um, I recommend a big fat spliff before you watch that movie. Then you'll have a great time, and and I and I think I look there were again there were guys around me, British dudes, who were making decisions to be in L.A., to sit in L.A., to wait to go for the big movies and maybe do some smaller things, and I just I had a visceral response in me that sent me home. I love this. And I just knew I was not going to spend the next five years of my life or however long it was going to take doing not very good stuff in order to get the good stuff, the good thing, just because I put myself in the vicinity. And Dreamcatcher was a, was a complicated experience for me. I think I was very lonely. I didn't ever admit it to myself, but looking back now, I think I was very lonely, stuck out in Vancouver on my own. Um, a kid where Hopkins and Kasdan were these grown... I, they were. I just felt like a kid. Thomas Jane, Timothy Oliphant, Jason Lee, uh, they were all just popping up and down to L.A. at the weekends because they could, but my home was London... And I was sort of stuck in Vancouver or Prince George for six weeks, way up north in, right. in you know, with the, the smell of the pulp mill, the chemicals, you know, smelled like toilet. And I just sort of, st yeah. And I, w I don't know. I just, I, f I was green, man. I think I was green still at the age of 29, 30. I, think I get it. I still felt in my blood, I wasn't this guy. I just think I still felt I wasn't that guy. I, was, I hadn't grown into that guy. And I... So I, 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 I just I made a promise to myself, follow the good writing. And that will take wherever it takes you. If that takes you back into theater, if that takes you into TV, if it takes you where just follow well, the good Well, but that's writing. a very clear thought, Damien. That no, is it, a very clear, that's an actual clear moment of, got, I now have a North Star. You gave yourself, instead of yeah. being, oh, what's the big thing? Or like you said, the no. guy's coming down there. You went, listen, I'm going to find, I, I think I know what. It had to be good. And I would, I, I would know if it was good. Right. You would know and, if there was something in it that made it. And I it. went home and I did the Foresight Saga, yeah. which was played on Masterpiece Theatre here. And is, I mean, I love saying, I'm so proud of the Foresight Saga. It's, it's still one of the most loved um, period pieces. And, uh, you know, for years afterwards, I may even still be there. You know, when Masterpiece Theatre comes up on PBS. Right, you're still And they have there. a couple of the old sort of things that flash up. My sort of body in a slightly weird way sort of goes, 
across the bottom of you the know, screen. You know, I've never seen it. I watched most of your work before sort of... before we started working together. I watched most of your stuff, but I did not watch that. I'm going to watch it. But now. what it did, but yeah. what that did, and because I alluding to what you're saying is like, so that happened, and then why wasn't it Spielberg, Scorsese, Kubrick, boom? Right. Is because I went home. I, that simply is because I went home to do good writing, and that put me into TV for three, four, five years. And, you know, peppered in amongst those, th- and theater, and peppered and in amongst those. And some independent movies th- and stuff. Like Keen, yes. which I'm obviously extraordinarily Wonderful proud of, movie. which I yeah. shot right here on the streets of New York. But, you know, tiny movie that one person and his dog saw. And, you know, uh, and so I, it was a little bit of a recalibration and sort of just coming back around and coming back at it. And then when I came to do life and... Homeland, and I had a, a wife, beautiful Helen, and my two kids. I was ready. I was ready to. I was ready to do that. But even coming into Homeland, I didn't have publicist or attorneys or anything like that. I had none of the paraphernalia that every young American actor had. And it was only when Homeland was such a sleeper hit. Sorry, you haven't even asked me about Homeland, but it's just interesting. No, no, it all connects. Because Showtime, it all connects because Homeland is when obviously then Showtime all this didn't work throw you did. Homeland at the public. It was I just, don't remember. It was just I... a small. It was. It was just. It was just a thing they were very proud of. They thought it was good, but it wasn't their big thing for that season, or it didn't feel like it. And then within week two, bam! Right. It's like the entire world was going. Oh my god! Did you see the show? Right. Have you seen the show? And I remember there was a. a, a it was a publicist who'd been calling me for some years, saying Demi Lives. I don't really want a publicist. I'm so sorry. And I called her, and I said, "Okay, I think something." It was another moment because just within the you know context of yes. this podcast and the, the moment. No, yes, for you know, sure. This was a moment. I said, "Okay, I think something's happening here. I don't think I'm well prepared for it, but I think I need to make I need to take advantage of it." I need to make the most of this That's moment. Awesome. And I called her and I said, lovely Annette, I said, the Golden Globes are in January. And this is, this is probably the single most ambitious thing I've ever done. I said, the Golden Globes are in January. It's now September. See what you can do for the Golden Globes. I love this. Because you knew. Well, you were ready, by the way. And, you were, it, like- and, and, and I got a nomination for the Golden Globes. Oh, did I? Yes, I got a nomination, I think, for that Golden Globes or the one after. Well, you ended up getting the Emmy, too. It all ended up working out. Uh, and, I, and, I, yeah, and I won the Golden Globe, too. I mean, I'm just saying. I, but, <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, I think we could go on forever. The last thing I want to ask you is this, and it's, it's unrelated. But I love that story, Damien. I love the idea that you went home to refine, to, in a way, to find your footing in this work then. You were I like, I'm going to do this work. You wouldn't think I was the guy that would say this about myself. And I think... You know, in a sort of British way, like, you know, sort of British sort of public boarding school way, I would, sometimes you don't always have that much awareness about yourself. Your self-awareness can be pretty, pretty low. And, but I think I was now, I can say now that I think I was a, I was a bit scared. I was, I was a bit scared off by the whole thing, the LA thing. I, I needed to go home and just retrench. Just go, I need to do good stuff with good people. There are, that is, I need to retrench. I need to do good stuff with good people. Can I say, carry those words with you, everybody. Because if you are looking for a North Star of your own, as I think that idea 
uh, certainly David and I, when we have been, had career, you know, uh, fumbles, that notion of, wait a second, we're going to retrench. We're going to remember why we like to do this. And we're going to find a way to do good stuff. It, it, and and it, when you simplify it like that, it just points you in the right direction. Damien, let me just say, man, um, you know, billions for us is, has been that incredible life-changing thing. And I, I so remember the first day that we met. We Skyped twice before yeah. you came to New York. And then I flew out. Then you flew out. We went to a David Chang restaurant, of course. Uh, and... Um, and I knew that night, which was delicious. We had those incredible cocktails that he gave. Oh us yeah, as it was well. amazing. Those uh, seven spice sours. That's it. Oh, we had a lot of them. Yes, if you want to get Damian Lewis in your project, <laughs> yeah. seven spice sours. But hey, man, thanks for doing this. We uh, we have to stop because we have a cast party to get to tonight. We have it's a crew, a cast and crew rap party tonight, folks. Tune in to Billions on Sunday nights or catch up on Showtime anytime or however you want to catch up on the show and watch the great Damien Lewis do his thing. Uh, you can find Damien on Twitter. He tweets occasionally, not as much as this uh, obsessive uh, atheist Jew does. You can find me uh, at Brian Compliment. You can write me, the moment, BK, at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Brian.